Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Variety and iHeart podcast, The Big Ticket. I'm your host, Mark Malkin. On the show today, I've got two guests for you. First up, Hugh Jackman. The Oscar nominee is here to talk about his new HBO film, Bad Education. Based on a true story, Jackman stars as a Long Island school superintendent who was sent to prison for embezzling $11 million from the public school system. Jackman talks about getting into character. He nails that New York accent brilliantly. Plus, he updates us on the upcoming Broadway revival of The Music Man. He's set to star on the show with Sutton Foster. Then later, Jackman's young Bad Education co-star, Geraldine Viswanathan. The 24-year-old fellow Aussie plays the high school student who uncovers the superintendent's wrongdoings while writing a story for the school newspaper. Find out what it was like working with Jackman and why she may be watching all of the Harry Potter films during quarantine. So stick around. I'll be right back with Hugh Jackman. Welcome back to The Big Ticket. Here's Hugh Jackman. Hey, Hugh. How are you? G'day, Mark. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? How are you coping in, uh, in all of this crazy upside-down world? Yeah. Um, you know what? It's, I'm luckily healthy. My family are healthy. My immediate family are here. Um, and so I think I'm trying to keep things simple and <laughs> go back to gratitude, particularly for those people who are out there doing all the work so that we can stay at home. Um, I, a few little tips for, for me. I, I realize I can't listen to the news too much. That's not good for me. Yeah. Um, trying to do a lot of simple grounding things, you know, time together, cooking, um, jigsaw puzzles, the kind of stuff that brings us <laughs> together as a family, you know? I know my husband and I are doing a jigsaw puzzle. I think the last time I did a jigsaw puzzle, I was probably 15. Yeah, I know. It's so addictive, isn't it? <laughs> it's crazy. So what are you guys cooking? What does Hugh Jackman cook? I just cooked today. Um, and I have to say, the first time is quite successful. Low-carb bread. Low-carb bread. Which sounds really bad, right? <laughs> it sounds like, what's the point? <laughs> And I have tried a couple of times when I've been on Wolverine diets and blah, blah, blah. Um, but I had someone in my house who's like, I'm trying to eat less carbs. I'm like, okay, let's have a look. And I found this thing and it was actually yummy. <laughs> now, the person, the actual person who wants it so far also found it really yummy too. Okay, I believe you then. I believe you. Uh, you also, <laughs> you, clo <laughs> you closed down your cafe in New York too, obviously out of safety. Yeah, yeah, we did. We have, we're lucky to have <clears throat> a big part of our business is uh, the pods that we have, the recyclable pods that we sell online uh, through the Keurig system. So mm. we're lucky we have that. But I tell you, I get, I got to tell you, honestly, I get stopped way more. Like below Times Square, I will get stopped three times about my cafe and once about my movies. Like, <laughs> it was like, hey, <laughs> thanks for the cafe, man. I love the coffee. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> I was so happy at first. I think my ego is a bit like, I think my coffee is more famous than me, <laughs> which is obviously the goal. When the world is back um, to so-called normal, how many more cafes do you want to open up? I don't know. Uh, that's always a good question. Obviously, for me, I did it. Um, you know, Paul Newman was my sort of inspiration on all this. I don't know if you've ever read the book, mm. Shameless Exploitation in Pursuit of Common Good, that was written by his partner. Mm. It's fantastic, and it's highly worth a read. And 
you know, that's really what inspired us to create it. And so obviously I want to make the foundation as big as possible to help as many uh, farmers as possible. And, you know, I think we're the only one in the copy space. We're giving, I give all my profits back. I think as a total company, we give 75% back to the farmers and we're, you know, we we have recyclable pod. We're doing really good things. So as a social business, I hope it's as big as possible. And whether that's sort of online, uh, through the pods, we're definitely going to open more cafes. We are literally just about to open this month, actually, um, an extension of our cafe uh, down in Dwayne Street. Um, but anyway, it'll 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 all happen in time. So how do you like your coffee? Uh, strong, <laughs> strong, black, strong. Double espresso, I like, uh, or an Americano. Um, sometimes a little bit of hot milk in it, if, if, sometimes. <laughs> but I generally like it sort of straight. And I don't know if you know in Australia, we're complete snobs, coffee snobs. So we were the first place in New York City to have a flat white. Um, yeah, all the Aussies. I think our, our business was started by the 50,000 Aussies that live in New York City because they all <laughs> came from all over to come and get a flat white at our place. See, I'm not a snob. I'm from uh, New York City, so you give me a nice bodega or Korean market coffee, and I'm oh. fine. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I get it. I'm an addict like you, man. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I do want to ask you, you know, when you with coronavirus and COVID-19, when you look at Broadway, how heartbreaking is it to see it's Broadway just, just completely dark? It's devastating. Um, I don't think anyone I could ever have imagined a world where we wouldn't find a way to come together to hear stories. You know, you know mm. I've always said over the many, many years, you know, things change. We're going to DVDs. Now we're going to streaming and now it's Netflix and what's going to happen with the film? Will people go to cinemas anymore? And I remember thinking the one thing that will always be there is the human's desire to come together to hear stories in a live sense. And I do believe mm. that will happen and I don't know how that will happen. Um, but this has just been devastating to so many people I know, musicians, crews, ushers. Um, we're really supporting the Actors Fund a lot because they do, they do such amazing work right across the industry, not just actors, obviously, but crews and hairdressers and you name it, um, ushers, everybody. It's there's I don't know the numbers on Broadway. I know in Australia there are 600,000 jobs in the entertainment industry. All of, you know, that's 600,000 in a country of 20 million. So, mm. and a probably working population of what, 8 million. So that's a lot of people work in entertainment. I can't imagine what it's like here. And I think it's very much the lifeblood culturally as well as economically for the city. And, you know, it's just been absolutely devastating. And you were getting ready to do music, man. Yes. Yep. Uh, you know, we still, mm. you know, I speak with Scott Rudin, you know, every other day and, you know, we, we, due to start rehearsals on June 29th, and that hasn't changed. That's good. Um, and our first preview is September 15th. But of course, you know, we'll have to see what happens, you know. But at, at present, that's still the plan. And the Tonys being, you know, postponed, it's just, it's just, I can't think of New York in June without the Tonys. Yeah, me neither. You know, I've been lucky enough to host them a bunch of times. And I, I it is a... That first Sunday in June, it just feels something so integral. Um, I actually haven't heard what, do you know what they're doing? Are they just postponed the whole thing or are they doing an online version? Yeah, right now they're just saying postpone. They're not saying canceled outright. Right. 
But I just, I don't know when they would do it because all these shows that haven't even opened that would have been eligible. So it's just... Yeah, there were 16 shows due to open, weren't there, this spring? Yeah, so it's what happens then. Oh, it's devastating. And, you know, I know, you know, my... I know several people who are about to open shows. Uh, I'm, you know, working with Jerry Zachs on, and he was in previews, you know, and mm-hmm. you think, oh, the poor things are in previews. What most people don't understand is it probably was seven years to get to that first preview. Right, right. Workshops, you know, I, I know what it takes to get a musical up and running and going, the amount of work that goes into it. It's just, you know, it's devastating. But it's like that across so many industries, you know. I just think, I don't know if the whole country, the whole world just gets recalibrated in some way that, yes. you know, we can't see when something like this happens that the, everyone just completely loses any money, any way to live. It's, you know, it's pretty right. horrifying. You know what, on the bright side, I see us finally as a society appreciating those essential workers, you know, right? who've always done it, continue to do it. But yeah, you gave pizza to the police department, right? right? Everyone, the people are just getting... <laughs> the appreciation that, that they've long deserved. What made you decide to send pizza to your local uh, police precinct? That was very sweet. It was just a discussion we had at, um, at dinner. Um, mm. And it was a friend of mine who said, oh, I was baking some cookies and I sent some cookies down to the, the local station. I was like, yeah. I mean, it, you know, I'm in a rare position where in a way I have an audience that is worldwide, right? And yeah, I have all that, millions of people follow me on this and that social media. But in the end, I'm a father of four who lives in a community and just up the road there is the police. And so there's fire departments and police stations. And thankfully, these men and women are working. And I was just a small way to say, hey, thank you, thinking of you. You know, I don't go past a garbage truck now or uh, anyone I see on the street who's wearing, I just give them a thumbs up as I'm riding my bike. They, you know, I'm wearing a mask. They have no idea who I am. And I tell, they're, they're, they wait back and say, thanks, you know. Um, they feel appreciated. And you had to celebrate your wedding anniversary in quarantine? <laughs> I don't know why, but Deb and I, we, we're together all the time. But over the 24 years, Deb and I were counting, something like 12 or 13, we haven't been together. It's been a press thing, I've been away, or, or she's been, or something has happened. So the two of us staying in, being together, was kind of really nice. <laughs> and we had the kids with us, and, and uh, we cooked a meal, and, you know, it was it was really lovely. Well, please don't tell me your treat was low carb bread for your anniversary. <laughs> yeah, that was not on the anniversary. Trust me, no. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about bad education. I went and did a number of days uh, uh, at different schools, some on Long Island, some in East Hampton. I went and hung out with superintendents just to see what their days are like. And and everywhere I went, every person, when they would say what I was doing, you know, they'd be like, oh, <laughs> because of that, I now have to do requisition orders just to buy a football. I can't spend $20 without signing seven forms. And that all happened because of this, because I think it was $20,000. Anything under $20,000 just had to get a stamp from someone at the school. Now it's all got to go, everything for a $20 purchase has to go to some central. So it changed everything in this situation. <laughs> So let's let's talk about Frank Tassone and and the whole story. Tell us what is the story of bad education? Well, the story really is of people slipping and the slipperiness of truth and how people can gradually inch by inch just pretend that things are okay 
because they suit them personally and how people who start off incredibly altruistically and doing things in service to teach, to educate, to raise up people, find themselves in jail having stolen millions of dollars. And what is that journey? How is that possible? I think it's also really a story of courage and perseverance when you see it from the angle of the 15-year-old schoolgirl in our movie, which actually was a composite of two people, but it was true that they were writing on the school newspaper, and that's how this story was unfolded. So the school newspaper that was edited by Frank Tassone was where, you know, um, well, overseen anyway, and had to be sanctioned by him every single one. It was overseen by, and, and that they had the courage to stand up to those sort of authority structures and and tell the truth. Um, it's a ter- it's a frightening thing to do when you attack powerful people. But if you're a 15 year old mm-hmm. at school, and it must have been terrifying, and, and I think that's an amazing part of the story. So Frank Tassone is a superintendent of Long Island school system in Roslyn, and he yeah. fi- they find out that he. He embezzled how much? How many millions? Well, 2.2. He denies that to this mm. day. He said, I only stole 1.1. 1. 1. That's his defense. <laughs> um, it was slightly, and like everything, you, you know, he spent a lot of money that was embezzled to buy gifts for teachers, to appreciate them, to make their lives easier, send them anniversary gifts and flowers on their birthday and lobster lunches and you know, send them away on weekends. You've worked so hard, congratulations, you know. So some of the embezzling money was, that's why he's still defensive about it, but they stole a lot of money. He spent $30,000 a year on dry cleaning and he justified that as the face of the school. He needed to be presentable, you know. But in the end, he ended up buying a house in Vegas that he shared with his lover right. that his husband didn't know about and the whole world didn't even know he was gay. So there was there's layer upon layer of deception. And I think what the real story is, is not just that Frank was Machiavellian and I'm going to deceive everybody. I think there's layers of deception to himself as well. Mm. And that is where the story I think resonates beyond this is true crime story and watch all this go down, you know, that actually all of us have areas in our life where we are prepared to turn a blind eye to something because it just doesn't suit us to face it, you know? And, mm. and I think that's where this is a cautionary tale. Um, it's just also an unbelievable story of how it happened. <laughs> you know, and, and they were not you, in cahoots you're, either. You're, like the Alison Janney and Frank, they right. were not in cahoots. It wasn't like a coordinated thing. It just sort of happened. And this culture happened where it was just seen to be okay. That was the norm. That's what you did. It's fine. It's okay. You work really hard. You're working for kids. Mm-hmm. You're doing things. You work nights, 14 hours a day. It's okay if you charge a credit card here and there. But there was more than here and there that, like you said, you know, he's, he has a place in Las Vegas. <laughs> yes. Right. But he's, also you know, how many people turned a blind eye to it because right. he was doing such a good job that house prices, it was a million dollars for a house, you know, and this was an area that hadn't been as successful, but because he'd brought the school up to number four in the country, everyone was making money off him. So no one really wanted to look right. under the covers, you know? Well, I loved when, when there was the whole issue of saying, like, we can't have this get out there because it's going to hurt our ratings for the school system and then hurt the kids. Right. Our budget won't get passed and then the kids won't get – yeah, I know. That's part of the story, <laughs> that 
is shocking to me that a group of six, seven board members all at the end of that meeting, after finding hundreds of thousands of dollars and probably more that they didn't know of yet, that they, they convinced themselves it was the right thing to do to keep it quiet. I mean, shocking. And by the way, none of those people in the board took money. Nope. <laughs> but they still thought it was a good idea. So it's, it's just amazing how we can, as humans, justify things and pretend things are okay. Let's talk about your accent. You do a good Long Island, New York accent. <laughs> how long did it take oh, you? I've got to give credit to Jess Platt. How long did it take you? Oh, a long time, man. I'm not, yeah. Tell me about I'm not that. one of those, you know, some actors can just, you pull them up at a party and say, do Scottish for me, do Indian, do this, do, <laughs> you know, I, I can get 80% of the way, but I need, I need work and I need uh, a dialect coach. And I've had the same dialect coach since I was uh, for 20 years, basically. Um, and wow. I don't do a movie without him. And by the way, Many producers have said to me, like, really? He's done 35 movies. He still needs a coach for the accent? Like, come on. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. That's what I need. I, I, I don't care about the size of my trailer. I do need a dialect coach. <laughs> so when did you know that you got that New York accent? Just Because it's a specific New York accent. It's not just, you know. Yeah, no, well, my coach is actually from, uh, he's from Brooklyn. So he's sort of around the area. And. <laughs> Uh, he was just like, no, no, no. And then, you know, he said to me at one point, he goes, that's it. And I remember he said, I want you to listen back. Cause I was, I said, you sure? And he said, listen back to it. Um, and you know, mm. I'm quite musical. I've got a musical ear. So when I hear things, I, I'm like, oh, and I listen back when something we'd record and I was like, oh, you're right. That's it. And then once you start to get that, then it's, You've just got to practice it and sit in it and so right. you're not thinking about it while you're acting. Did you ever think of reaching out to Frank? Yeah, I thought about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually was not encouraged to do that uh, by the huh. studio and producers at the time and I understand why. And But there was so much public uh, – there's so much on the public record. I mean, I literally looked mm-hmm. at maybe 15 hours of interviews with Frank because, you know, he used to write – in the newspaper every week he had, or every second week he had an editorial. There's so much stuff that he wrote, um, written about him, not just the scandal prior to the scandal. So I really did know a lot. And then, you know, I wanted to do a lot of research about what it is to be a superintendent. This is a whole system I didn't grow up with in Australia. It's very different. Um, Voting on budgets and all that stuff, none of that, this is all foreign to me, but also just the mindset of how lies can take place. I've read a lot about that. Did, did you like Frank? Did you like him as a character, as a real person? How do you I, – I assume you have to find something to like about him? As an actor, you have to – I always remember – yeah, I always remember my uh, acting teacher said, it's not about liking or disliking your character. You have to fall in love with your character. <laughs> like, hmm. you are the character. You can't – if you are outside your character judging it at all, you failed. You're going to fail. You have to be within it and understand it. And there is not a person on the planet who walks around going, I'm a bad guy, I'm a villain. And this, everyone feels that they're doing their best and that they're doing, most people feel they're doing the right thing, you know, for whatever reason. And that's the job of an actor. And, you know, I see someone in Frank who, incredibly smart, incredibly brilliant, uh, doctor from Columbia, dedicated to kids, a great, and education, 
um, could easily have gone into other more money-making sort of areas if he wanted, but he chose to go there and he made a real difference. Many of the programs that he started there at Roslyn are now uh, staples across the country. And he's also someone who lost his way through success. And hey, I'm in Hollywood. I see that all the time, you know. Um, success is something that can really accelerate the flaws that are within people. You know, and what Frank had, I mm. think, as, and this is something that most of us can relate to, is this idea of needed, needing to be perfect on the outside in appearances. And so people judged him and his work and his as absolutely perfect. And he mm. was just underneath the water treading as fast as he could. And obviously in the end, he, he couldn't tread any longer. And talk about some of those scenes with just you and Alice and Janney, that one scene where you take a bite out of her sandwich. Yeah. That is a good scene. Yeah, man. She's, uh, there was a bunch of ad-libbing going. This was actually our first scene together. Oh, wow. We both known each other for years through the theater world, but we never worked together. So uh, I can only speak for myself. I was just so excited about that day. And um, when we first shot her, Corey said, I'm just going to put a camera on the two of you. And, I want to see, I'm just going to put it behind you and you guys. So we were, we were in together, so we didn't have to worry about overlapping dialogue or anything like that. And we just started to play and, and have fun. And Corey just would never cut because we just kept on going. And it was, mm. I just lost it as you can, some of the laughs in there are actually me laughing, you know, it's, <laughs> it was just too much fun. Well, thank you, sir, for chatting with me. I appreciate it. And you stay well. Yeah, and, thanks, mate. Uh, stay well with your family. Thank you, mate. You too. Be well. Take care. That was Hugh Jackman. Now coming up after a short break, Bad Education's rising star, Geraldine Viswanathan. The young Aussie reveals what it was like meeting Jackman for the first time. Plus, find out what happened when she told Daniel Radcliffe, her co-star on the TBS series Miracle Workers, that she had never seen any of his Harry Potter movies. I'll be right back with Geraldine Viswanathan. Lancaster, South Carolina is in the middle of not much. But growing up nearby, I knew it as the hometown of a black man named Jim Duncan, who became a Super Bowl hero. Duncan, up to the 15th, the 20th. Now my new podcast, Return Man, I'll discover that his death still makes no sense at all. The story was that my brother went into the police station, took a gun off a police officer, and shot himself in the head. Most people don't believe that. For the past three years at the Rock Hill Herald, I've looked back at a story that's timelier than ever. Breaking news. Don't shoot! Have you got some time to talk? It involves race, the mental state of the person, and a town that was scared to death to say anything. Listen to Return Man on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you took away the date and time, could you imagine that happening today? Yes, you can. Welcome back to The Big Ticket. Here's Bad Education actress Geraldine Viswanathan. So how are you? I'm good. What was it like walking on set the first day to work with Hugh Jackman. Oh man. Um I was obviously very um intimidated, especially <laughs> meeting him. We did a table read and that's where I met him for the first time. And I was just very starstruck. And then um but he just immediately put me at ease. He's just like the friendliest, loveliest, and we're both from Australia, so it was just kind of instant like <laughs> hey. <laughs> Definitely w would 
have moments, especially during a scene, um, mm -hmm. where I would be like, huh, <laughs> okay, he's acting and now I have to do it as well. <laughs> it's uh, pretty crazy. Because isn't he like considered a god in Australia? I mean, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. I think he just got like, he he couldn't come to to TIFF because he was getting some kind of like royal honor of course in was. australia like the the equivalent of being knighted in australia <laughs> <laughs> just low key so tell me about the first time you read the script for bad education how did it come about i first met with mike the writer mikowski and i we just got on so great um and i thought he was really smart and cool and and then i read the script and it was just like the fastest i've read a script like it's just so sharp and um well written and interesting and um and i just thought it was so i just loved like the pace of it and i thought it was so cool and i thought rachel was really cool this like underdog kind of has her own scandal in her in her personal life and so it was coming from this place of like not having anything to lose and she's on the outside and she ends up being the whistleblower in this whole scandal i just thought it's it's cool to see the the high school uh student newspaper journalist be the hero um now was she was she based on someone real or was it a composite kind of thing she was i think it was in the, the real story, it was more the um, student journalist body as a whole. It right. wasn't necessarily one person, but um, I did meet with the woman that it was, that Rachel was loosely based off, mm -hmm. um, which was cool. It was mostly just cool to, to hear her account of what happened. And um, yeah, and, and Mike definitely kind of took, she was very like, uh ambitious and sort of um but more quiet and like it yeah he kind of took elements of her personality and put them into rachel as well and what about getting a long island accent oh gosh <laughs> i know i was like do you want me to do a long island accent i just was like no <laughs> they, they said no See, no, I, I like no good. we're good um so what was it like hearing Hugh Jackman for the first time because he had the accent. He got that New York accent. He did have the accent. It was cool. I mean, he's very good. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he, yeah, I don't know. I think I kind of, and he's someone that like in between takes will just slip out of it. Like when I am doing an American accent, I kind of like to stay in it the whole time because it's just like a, the way that your mouth is formed like it's a totally different thing so um but he's able to just kind of like dip in and out which is cool that's kind of crazy yeah did you get to sing and dance with him at all oh <laughs> he would sometimes just break out into a, a tap routine and <laughs> he, would, he just... would not yes <laughs> absolutely just in between just like da -da 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 -da. <laughs> <laughs> he's the greatest that's amazing yeah he taught me he did teach me how to play back backgammon that's the game backgammon yep it's a yeah yeah yes 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 so tap, um, tap dancing and backgammon 
Yeah. Oh no, my gosh. But no tap dancing lessons from him. No, I think that would have been a bit of a lost cause. I think that's. <laughs> I'll get some beginner classes somewhere else, and then I'll go to Hugh. When do you shoot Miracle Workers? We shot the second season in Prague, end of last year. Um, like August to November. When you did the first season, you had to tell Daniel Radcliffe that you were not a Harry Potter fan. <gasps> <gasps> oh God, I know. I kind of wish I could like go back and do it all again. You know, <laughs> it's definitely, and, I, and I'm like, why didn't I? Harry Potter is amazing. Like what's wrong with me? But um, it was just the movies. It was just, I was traumatized by one of the movies because <laughs> a troll stuck a wand up his nose and I like freaked out and left the theater. I don't understand why, but, um, I, yeah, I feel like he's, he's got so much else though. Like I love Swiss army man. And like, did you, you like the farting corpse? I did. I thought it was, there was some like scenes in that that was so beautiful. <laughs> uh, like, <laughs> and him and Paul Dana like a dream sign me up so you're like listen I didn't see Harry Potter but the farting corpse movie <laughs> farting corpse loved it <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like also Daniel Rackham I've interviewed him a few times and he seems like he'd totally be cool with like oh you didn't see it I don't care yeah I think uh, you know I, I think I'm in the minority <laughs> so I think <laughs> he's uh, not phased by it. It might he might even be a little breath of fresh air. I'm the only one on set not making Harry Potter jokes at him. <laughs> so basically, you're telling me you still haven't watched the Harry Potter movies? Yeah, actually, I haven't. Maybe that's what I should do in quarantine. Damn. There you go. <laughs> and then like catch up, Jesus. What is it like working with Daniel? I mean, so great. I've been, I mean, it's annoying because I, everyone, I'm like, oh my God, they're amazing. But um, truly, he's so lovely, so considerate and thoughtful and, um, and just like works so hard and he's just the best. That whole cast, we've become so close now and, and I, I love them. They're great. And the Broken Heart Gallery. What could you tell me? Oh, uh, yeah. Tell me about that one. That one, we um, we shot in Toronto over the summer last year. Um, it's a rom-com. It's um, very fun and sweet. And um, the writer-director, Natalie Krinsky, is amazing. And we just totally, I mean... She's one of my closest friends now and I, she houses me a lot <laughs> and uh, is just the greatest. And yeah, we just had an amazing, amazing time on that one. And it just felt like a dinner party. We had so many cool guests. We had Bernadette Peters and um, Suki Waterhouse, Molly Gordon, obviously Dacre Montgomery. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's really fun. Hopefully that'll come out. Who do you play? What do you, what's your character? I play Lucy. She um, is she's not a hoarder, but she 
holds on to things, especially <laughs> things connected to relationships and breakups and it starts to become overwhelming and she kind of, she's heartbroken in the beginning of the film and she needs to sort of channel her, her heartbreak and her um, addiction or tendency to cling on to objects and material things. So she starts a gallery um, made of those, those objects and she tries and then invites other people to bring in their heartbreak mm. messages so do, do you save your heartbreak paraphernalia <laughs> i <laughs> i do i actually do hold i love i have so many boxes of little memory things mm. i love it i love living in the past um <laughs> <laughs> it's so nice there um yeah i'd say i have a few breakup boxes definitely a couple more questions what are you doing in quarantine are you binging are you a binger um yes pretty much we just finished tiger king well i was just gonna say you have a tiger on your shirt so you must have finished tiger yeah king. exactly and i'm just paying tribute <laughs> it has been on my mind it's it is insane um that story I just finished watching you mm. finally caught up on that. That was a whirlwind. Um, and then, yeah, have been doing classic quarantine things, trying to cook. It's very confronting how bad I am at cooking. What have you tried to cook? Oh my God. Not nothing ambitious. It's really just pasta and I did this like ravioli thing and it turned out so bad. I couldn't even eat it. It was so gross. I don't know. We've been, my isolation pals, we've been taking turns in, in cooking and, and everyone else is very good at it. So I've kind of let them take the reins, you know, trying to pick up tips and tricks, <laughs> trying to be an adult. Yeah, we've been playing poker. We've been trying to get good at poker, which is just a nice way to not look at a screen for like right. a couple hours. Right. What was the first audition you went on that you either got the role or you didn't? Um, first audition I went on. My first first audition was probably when I was five years old, mm -hmm. and I auditioned for the performing arts school in my hometown that I went to. Um, I have no recollection of it, but apparently I did have to pretend to walk a dog. And I nailed it and got in, and um, apparently that was my first audition. <laughs> and one last question. What's the one TV show you could watch over and over again and you never get bored? Uh, it's got to be Friends. Yeah, why is that? I think it's just really comforting for me. I really became obsessed with Friends when I was, like, nine years old. And it was kind of the, the earliest... Um, obsession and inspiration for me and I think it's more so to do with that it's just a fantasy like these six people who are so close and they live so close to each other and they hang out all the time I think I just always really wanted that so it's just very it's just the most comforting for me whenever I'm revisiting friends I know that I'm in need of some comforting Geraldine, this is great. This is fun. Thank you so much. Congratulations on the movie. Thank you. And um, hopefully we'll meet when the world is not upside down. Yes. Looking forward to it. <laughs> <laughs>
That was Geraldine Viswanathan. Bad Education premieres on HBO on Saturday, April 25th. Thanks for listening to The Big Ticket. Coming up on the show tomorrow, RuPaul's Drag Race stars Shangela, Bob the Drag Queen, and Eureka O'Hara. The three of the stars of HBO's new drag makeover show were here. Find out what they have to say about traveling to some of the smallest and most conservative towns in the U.S. to help locals find their inner drag queens. Plus, they weigh in on the sherry pie controversy that has rocked this season of RuPaul's Drag Race. That's all coming up tomorrow on The Big Ticket. For now, don't forget to follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Mark Malkin. And for all your Hollywood news, check out Variety.com. Stay safe and be well, and I'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow. 